Welcome to Basically the Podcast. I am your host, Stephanie Preisner, and today in studio with me, I have a very interesting politician. Yeah, I mean, he is a politician. He has had a colourful career across more than one party, and I'm very interested to talk to you. Welcome to the studio, Stephen Donnelly. How are you doing today? I'm doing good, thank you. Yes, delighted to be here. Yeah, I'm very excited to talk to you. Um, Take me back. So you're currently the Minister for Health and we can get to that because I'm sure being the Minister for Health at the moment is a very exciting job. But talk to me about how you got into politics or where you started or why, in God's name, you want to do this. I've always had a goo on me to help people. My mum was a teacher. She worked in girls' reformatories and did a bunch of good stuff. And I've always just had an ethos for public service. So I was in 2010... I was minding my own business with two very young children and, and my wife, and we had moved back to Ireland. I had, I had been studying in the US. And What were you studying? Uh, international development. Oh, cool. So how do, you, how do you work with the IMF or the World Bank uh, or governments in really poor countries to help people who are in trouble? So that's what I had done. And I was minding my own business. Uh, I was doing a job I loved, actually in healthcare reform. And then the IMF came to Ireland. And oh, I thought, yeah. mm, I'm kind of trained in, in this stuff. I want to help. So I got involved and somebody said at a rugby match, why don't you run for the doll? And I thought that was bonkers. Uh, but I did. And I was elected. And that's So you ran as an independent. Yeah. And yeah. was your, like, your cause to be like, I- I'm going to like sort out this Troika situation? Like 2010, now yeah. taking listeners back, we were right in the middle of that yeah. Recession. Do you, you some some of your listeners may remember now? It's a decade ago, but there was a there was a six one news on RTE, okay, and it had the three lads had arrived from the IMF and they were walking down Grafton Street, I think it was, okay, and I just thought, ah, here you've got to do something. So what did you think that that meant? Like, what does the IMF coming to a country mean? That's the International Monetary Fund. Yeah. So when when the IMF arrives, things have gone badly wrong, right, and they don't have a really good track record. So they're not coming helping. in to help. They are coming in to help. They're just not always very good at it. Okay. And they follow an economic philosophy, which I would not share, which would be broadly viewed as what's called, called sort of neoliberal, but a lot of privatization. So in, a, in an African uh, country where friends of mine had worked, people I was studying with over in Boston, uh, they privatized education because their model said it was a sensible thing to do, and in fact, it was a really stupid thing to do. Okay. So what, what my training had been was, how do, you, how do you help a country when the IMF arrives in? Now, what I was thinking was Africa. Right. Or, you know, developing nations. In fact, I was, in the, I was talking with my employer at the time about moving to Johannesburg. Okay. Because uh, the, the p- people I worked for had an office in Johannesburg. And I was going to work with sub-Saharan African governments on things like building education systems, building healthcare systems, figuring out how to collect taxes, you know, the basics of a country to help some of the the poorest people in in, in the world. And then the IMF came here. And the plan was no more thought out than I just want to help. So did you go door, so you ran then in a general election? Yeah. And did you go door to door explaining to people what what you were going to do or how did that work? Kind of. So there was like, what was your sales pitch? Yeah, yeah. So there was there was one buddy of mine called Jesse, who was the only person I knew who'd ever been in politics. Right. Because I hadn't a clue. 
I'd never met a politician. I'd never been in, in a party. I'd never run in an election or, or canvassed for anybody. Yeah. So me and two mates sat down in a meeting room in London and sort of worked it out from basics. We said, well, they put up posters, don't they? Oh, Jesus, we better do that. Okay, well, then you need a photograph. Well, does anyone know a photographer? Right. We're going to need money. Jesus, how do you raise money? Uh, what else do they do? Well, they've leaflets. Jesus, we better go and get some leaflets. So, so it, really was that, it was that it basic. from the ground. Okay. Uh, like out of nothing. And did you expect to get in? How many seats are in your constituency? Five. Okay. And so who, like who kind of is the, there's always some seats that are kind of... Well, there was a lot of movement at the time. Okay. Well, that's yeah. helpful. So uh, I got the fifth seat after three and a half days voting. Oh my God. Uh, or counting, counting. rather. By uh, about a hundred votes. And See, I, it's really, I, I keep saying this to listeners, like a hundred votes, like it's so important that you vote. It all matters. Yeah, it everyone matters. matters. So I got in touch with a mate of mine called Jesse. He was the only person I knew who'd been in politics. And he had run a city in Ohio for Obama. Okay, cool. Right. And so I thought I better talk to Jesse. So we snuck, friends of mine in Washington, D.C. snuck him into the World Bank because uh, they had video conferencing facilities. Uh, oh, well, it was pre-Zoom. You know? Okay. <laughs> pre-Zoom, right? And we, we had video conferencing facilities in London. So we snuck Jesse in and I said, Jesse, I'm going to run. And Jesse said, Stephen, you have no profile. Nobody knows who you are. You've no organization. You've no party. You've no manifesto. You've no money. You've no hair. Like, <laughs> you're having a hope. Yeah. It can't be done, right? But because, I bet you that well, you were like, come on, I'll show you. Well, he, he showed me. Right. So he took a weekend off and he flew to Dublin. And he came out to Wicklow. And you he, have some serious friends, man. That's Jesse's big, awesome. That's yeah, okay. Jesse's awesome. And so Jesse, uh, he had done training for the Obama campaign and how you train normal people like like me and yep. everyone who was in the room and turn us into political act- activists. Okay. And so we had a really embarrassing weekend with Jesse because it's all, it's American. So it's all kind of hopey, changey and demonstrative. I'm imagining the King's speech now. Like what kind of training was he doing? Well, all very kind of, you know, get in touch with your your inner self and and be activists and very American. Okay. Which obviously for a bet down Irish Catholic male is hard. Yeah, difficult. (laughs) But you know what? It worked. And we said, look, if we run the best campaign, traditional campaign you could ever run, um, we will definitely lose. Because you're competing with people who know what they're doing. Yes. So we hadn't a clue what we were doing. So, so it was a great freedom in another way because we just made it up. And in the end, we, we got about 150 volunteers and we knocked on tens of thousands of doors and we um, distributed a lot of leaflets. But really, it's about conversations, you know, and, and I was lucky in that I got a slot on Vincent Brown and I got a slot on, on, um, on with Pat Kenny. Uh, but really it was mainly down to knocking on doors and chatting to people. Yeah, because and that's where the real... Sort yeah, of and, and people said, well, what are you going to do if you get elected? I said, I, I don't know. I, I haven't a clue what I'm going to do when I get elected. But I'm of more use in there than I, I am, am out here. here. Yeah. So vote for me and we'll... Take it from there. We'll take it from there. So that that's what we did. And then when you did get elected, talk to me about how the social debt... So you went as an independent mm. and then... It's my understanding that... You, did you set up the Social Democrats? Yeah. Okay, so the Social Democrats are a party. We've had Holly Carnes uh, on the podcast. Um, so we know a little bit about the Sock Dems, but you might tell us how that all started. That started in a, a long drive from Virginia at, at a friend's wedding. In Cavan or back in the States? In the States. Right, okay, uh, so we're back in America. Yeah, we're back in America. Uh, my wife and I were over there for a friend's wedding. Mm-hmm. And we had a very long drive from Virginia up to... New York, where we were flying home. So we had a long time to talk. 
And my politics is progressive centre-left. Progressive so centre-left. So, so unpack so, that a little bit for us. Yeah, so progressive as in I would be socially liberal. Yes, yeah, so right? giving so, people choice and options, yeah. allowing them to have autonomy and whatever. All of that stuff. So yeah. I would have been fighting very hard on gay marriage, fighting very hard on repeal of the eighth, those, those sort of social issues. I'd be socially liberal. And centre-left, but I come from a business background. Okay. So my view is, uh, or my politics, I guess, are... Where where, uh, where I see the country at its best is when you have great public services, like local schools. Paid for by the tax of people who are working. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, together with great community groups supported a lot of the time by local business. Okay. Um, and so there's a, there's a, there's a, almost a triangle, right? So what do you want? You want brilliant public services and you want a really strong economy. Yeah. And then you want really strong communities, right? So for me... When I got in, I, I was confused by the narrative, which was you were either, you know, pro, pro-equality pro or pro-business. That the two couldn't be combined. Thought, but not only can they be combined, you, 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 if you want to make people's lives better, you need a strong economy. And there's nothing better, you know, and the glue that holds it all together is strong communities. Like, take where, where are we at our best you know, with GAA or sports or dance classes or the arts in communities and community groups. Look how people supported each other during the first wave of COVID, mm-hmm. right? That's us at our best. Um, but also it was great public services. There was the HSE really stepping up and our doctors and our nurses and our therapists all stepping up. It was amazing stuff. So on this drive in, from Virginia Sorry, to New York. So, no, no, but yeah. is, were you seeing that those things that you wanted were not being were provided for by the current government. What year was this? Yeah, I didn't see them. Uh, this would have been 2014, I guess. Okay. Uh, so I thought I'm going to, I said, I, I'm going to set set something up. So so I thought about it long and hard and then I approached uh, several TDs, including Catherine and Roisin. Were they uh, independent at the time? Yeah, we were all independent at the time. Yeah. yeah. And said, look, I, I think this is something we should do. So uh, some people, like Catherine Zappone was involved at the start, mm-hmm. you know, who is a, a, a friend of mine and just an amazing uh, politician. She's finished now, but she was she's just a, a powerhouse. So the four of us really got together. Catherine Zappone peeled off because she just needed to focus on getting elected and, mm-hmm. and she was doing that as an independent. And Catherine Roisin and myself continued with it. And launched it, and it was incredibly hard uh, and exciting. And uh, and we did that, and then we fought the 2016 election. Uh, and How did that go for you? It went okay. I don't uh, know how many, yeah, how many seats they got. Well, or? so Catherine Roisin and I all were already sitting, and we were returned. We all topped the polls in our respective constituencies. So when you ran again, it was with this, with under the Stockdowns? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, uh, and then there were other people, uh, brilliant people, who like Gary Gannon who was now oh, yeah. elected for the Sock Dems, who ran uh, and just missed it by a, by a whisker. None of the others got in. Um, but yeah, so it was, a, it was a mixed election. Yeah. And so how did then, so how did the next couple of years go? Because now you're in Fianna Fáil. Yeah, so I, unfortunately, at a, at a senior level, the, the, it didn't work. So between Catherine Roisin and myself... The party didn't work or you didn't work? The three of the, us didn't work. Oh, right, okay. It just didn't work. And I sort of ran out of road. And got to a point after the election where I found it impossible to get anything done. Okay. Uh, and I'm not I'm not blaming anyone. You know, people yeah, yeah. with the best will in the world can all try to work together. We're quite different people. And it just didn't work. And it it it, it really didn't work. It and it got it got quite bad. You hear that sometimes with people who are in independence or the smaller parties that 
it, it's much more difficult to, to get things through when you have the larger parties because that's how it's weighted. Like the votes are per seat, per party. So yeah. it is quite difficult. It is, but this wasn't about a small party not being able to get anything done. This was about me within that Within party. that party. Okay, okay. I just could There was a bunch of stuff that I, I thought was needed and it just was impossible to get anything done. So I got to a point where I said, look, I, I am, I'm useless here. I can't achieve anything for the people I represent here. You know, so um, I left. It was a tough time, difficult thing to do, I have to say, on a personal level because I'd invested a huge amount of time and emotion and yeah. energy and passion into it. I had some very good friends who were involved politically who I lost, which was very, very difficult. And again, yeah. I'm not blaming anybody. It's just, unfortunately, it was collateral damage of the whole thing. I want to tell you about another podcast that is on the Headstuff Podcast Network. It's called Words to That Effect, and it's a really brilliant podcast that looks at all things literature. Connor talks you through the history, the relevance and cultural importance from like absolutely everything from pirates to zombies and looking at what the driving force is behind the literary genres of like detective stories, fantasy epics and romance novels. He's got really good guests on it, loads of past episodes that you can just binge and I love finding a podcast that has loads of historical episodes because it's something that will take me through weeks. Season five has just started this week. So take a listen to this trailer and see what you think. I'm Connor Reed with words to that effect. How do the Victorians invent time? Where do all those pirate cliches come from? Should we all read romance novels? Why are kids so obsessed with dinosaurs? What makes the perfect detective story? What happens to culture and society in a post-apocalyptic world where everything has stopped? Words to that effect tell stories of the fiction that shapes popular culture. Listen now wherever you get your podcasts and at wttepodcast.com. I think a lot of people perceive that like this is just your job but when you're setting up like that's your whole life for so long that you do have fret, like your personal life becomes enmeshed and it must be really hard to like step away from all that yeah yeah it, did you it, step away back to independent or did you go straight no I mean when you step away you're kind of by default your back's an okay. independent you don't sort of choose choose to step. nominate yourself as an independent you know if you're if you're not in a party by default you are an independent okay. so Unfortunately, uh, it just didn't work out and I never really ever sp- have spoken publicly about the details of what was going on in the background. I don't intend to, but it wasn't pleasant. Yeah. And okay. unfortunately, I had to go. And because I never spoke about it publicly, there's a lot of people who would have put, had faith in me who never heard really what I was dealing with. Yeah. And probably felt let down. But I just felt sometimes you got to just you know, the, the the dirty laundry and all that stuff, you just leave it alone. I don't think anyone benefits from kind of public spats and recrimination and, and, and those things, you know. So anyway, then uh, I was working as an independent, got one or two really nice things over the line. Do you um, want to tell us about them? Well, for example... I think exa- it's important that people know the things that you're proud of, like... As yeah, sure. So you remember the vulture funds. I do. They're still around. Um, they were making vast profits. I presume they still are making vast profits, but but some of them were paying almost no tax. Okay. So you had you had uh, some of them had come into the country, bought loans uh, very cheap, were making tens of millions in profit, but because of a a thing they were doing, were paying two hundred and fifty euro a year in tax. Sounds and pretty I, trumpian. 
Yeah, well, it was it was just something that I certainly had no tr- truck with. Yeah. So fought very hard in that, and it culminated in a meeting uh, in government buildings. Myself and Michael Noonan, he was finance minister, minister at the time. time, and we were debating it back and forward. And eventually, he said, "Actually, yeah, let's do it. Let's change the thing." So we rewrote a whole portion of the tax code. And, and now they have to pay tax. They do. And and my sense is that there'll be several billion euro in additional taxes paid, which sounds like a very dry thing. But I can tell you as Minister for Health, that money translates to into doctors real. and nurses yeah, yeah. and healthy children and operations and, and lives being saved. So, yeah, that was that was pretty cool. And that was an independent, that was, yeah. so you were independent then. And then how did you come to join another party again? Well. And did you pick, like, do you kind of look at them and go, okay, well, on this trip from Virginia to New York, I identified some things that I need and this party seems to have them? Or was it more like I can get stuff done if I join this party that has some muscle and I can affect change by joining them? So what I saw in Fianna Fáil and in the, the TDs and senators that I, I knew in the Dáil and in the Shannon was a group of people in a party ultimately with a vision for a fairer Ireland. Yeah. Which is what it really boils down to. Is is it an Ireland where everyone can grow up with a with a decent chance at a decent life? And at the moment, we're we're pretty good in a lot of areas, but there's a there's a but there's a lot of areas we're not good in, like including what? healthcare. Okay. Right. So we have a two tier healthcare system. So if you can afford private health insurance and you get sick, chances are you'll get access to really good quality healthcare really quickly. And if you can't afford health insurance, and you're using the public system, some parts of it are brilliant, but there's other parts they'll say to you, well, it'll be three years before you can even see a consultant. And people get a lot sicker in that time. And it might be two years before you can have your operation. And people get sicker in that time. And you can see huge differences in health outcomes for people based on how much money their parents earn. You yeah. know, So um, in Fianna Fáil, I saw and see, and I'm now part of, a group of people who really are motivated by that and saying, you know, we're proud proud of our republic, mm-hmm. deeply proud of our republic. And we we want our republic to work for everybody. Yeah. And it doesn't work for everybody. So I saw that in them. And I also saw to your to your question, I saw a determination to do something about that. Yes, yeah. And and go into government and do something about that. Uh, with the ideas to back it up because you can have all the flowery language you want and you can sit in opposition and protest all you want. But ultimately, you got to have the ideas to back up your vision and then you've got to have the determination to go into government yeah. and make a lot of decisions, some of which will be very unpopular, in order to make your country a better place for everybody. And that really is what I saw in Fianna Fáil. And did you, were, did you join Fianna Fáil when they were in opposition? Yeah. Yeah, so what year yeah. are we in there? Uh, 2017, I'd say, about three years ago. And just talk us through, like, and if you don't want to, you don't have to, but, like, how do those conversations go? Like, do you ring up Micheál Martin and go, can I join your club? Or, how, like, how do you switch, or how do you enter a political party while all while being a sitting TD? I bumped into him swimming uh, one day. Actually. This is a joke. <laughs> <laughs> You're not serious. No, I did, I did. You I was... bumped into Micheál Martin swimming. So we were in Glenties, which is this political school that you get invited to speak at in Donegal. Okay. And I was out swimming. Okay. And uh, there was someone swimming in the opposite direction. And we were Are we actually... in a pool now or are we in no, the no, sea no, or the sea. lake? Okay. In the sea. So in and the... we both popped up and uh, <laughs> I said, Micheál, we're going to have to stop meeting like this. <laughs> 
No, he and I got to talking. So we uh, were, the sea was a joke. No, the sea actually happened. Okay. Yeah. But yeah, that's not where the conversation yeah. happened. Okay, well, go on. It's where parts of the conversation happened. Um, but I'd also worked very closely with people like Michael McGrath. Okay. And Lisa Chambers and Niall Collins and Sean Fleming and others. And, you know, you're on committee with these people and in the doll with these people for years. So you get a sense you of them really and their get ethos. To, yeah, and... you do. You get a sense of who they are and what they stand for. And... Uh, I was I was impressed by what I saw. So I joined and I remember coming to my first front bench meeting and thinking, I have no idea what this is going to be like. Because yeah. all you've seen from the outside is the sales brochure. Yeah, really. yeah, of course. You don't really know. And I was so impressed. You know, the instincts at the front bench were always, number one, is this the right thing to do? Yeah. Does this help people? And does, you know, does it help people who need to be helped? Yeah. And then number two, which I really liked, there was always a test that said, could we stand over this in government? Yes. Okay. Because, you know, I, I listened to your interview with Michal Martin and you were you, one of the questions you were asking him was, you know, advice for young people in choosing a party. Yeah. And I was reflecting on your question myself. And I thought the thing I'd add to what he said was, you've got to decide, I think, whether you want to be part of protest, which is perfectly legitimate, yes, right, uh, or part of potentially government. But is that not dependent on what party is in government? Like uh, being an opposition TD, so if you're not in government, so when you joined Fianna Fáil, they were in opposition, is your job sort of not to to be in protest then? like to Not keep in protest. The, no, okay. so what I mean is like there are political parties in the Dáil who have no intention of going into government. Right. They're parties of protest. Uh, there are parties... Is it that they have no intention or they're just never going to get there? I, they've no intention. Well, if you look like at... surely the, they would want to be in, no? Well, look at the last election. There's a bunch of parties said, no, we're not having anything to do with negotiations for government. We are opting out of the process of even considering being in government. Um, so there... And there's a legitimate role for that. Okay. You know, yeah, yeah. and uh, so you, do you want to be kind of... Is protest what you want to do? And it's a perfectly legitimate thing to do. Or do you want to be in government? And what I was really impressed with on the Fianna Fáil front bench was it's easy in opposition to say, sure, we'll give everything to everybody. Yeah, you know, because it's you much, don't actually have to stand over You it. don't have to back it up. It's much more difficult to say, this is our position. And if we were in government, we would have this position. Okay. Now, at the margin, you mightn't 100%. Yeah. Be disciplined, <laughs> right? You might, you might occasionally stray from that discipline. But... Like when I was canvassing in Wicklow in the last election, mm -hmm. there was a particular political party or more than one. I'd be knocking on doors. But there was one guy in Wicklow. He said, Stephen, I like you. I voted for you in the last two elections. I'm going to give you number two, but I'm giving X my number one. Because they were in a different party. And I said, yeah, just a different party. So why? Why? You do, why? Grand, but why? And he said, they called to my door and they said they were going to get my three kids houses and they were going to get my mortgage paid off for me. And but I said, yeah, but like, like that's not. I said, how did they say they were going to pay for that? They're going to tax the banks. So there was a particular party going around Wicklow, basically telling everyone they could have a free house. Right. <laughs> and sounds great. It I does sound for them great. Too. Well, I this would... guy did. This right. guy did. And a lot of other people did too. But you see, if that party doesn't get in, they can never be proved. They don't ever have to stand over that. In a way, you yeah. kind of love that party to get in. Be like, OK, now give me my free house. Well, except that everyone would be in for a bitter disappointment because there's no free houses. Right. But that's the only way that people are going to see that these are lies that people are knocking door to door. Partly. Partly. Yeah. Or you try and apply a bit of, you got to look at what you're being promised. 
you know, because politicians and political parties promise all sorts of stuff. And it's just one of the things I really liked about Fianna Fáil was this was a group of people who were very serious about saying we take our job very seriously. These are our positions and in government we would do this. And and by and large that that held. And then your role now. So do you, when Fianna Fáil got in and you realised that Micheál Martin was going to be Taoiseach, and you were going to be in cabinet. Do you do you get to say, can I be the minister for health? Do you get to pick, or do you just get handed it? Is it something that you would have wanted? Yeah, it is. No, I asked. You asked. So before I are you mental? Yeah, I, yeah. Uh, so before I took a mad figari in twenty eleven, okay. and ran for the doll, I had a perfectly good job that I really loved, which was healthcare. I was doing healthcare reform in other countries. So working with individual hospitals or with groups of hospitals or groups of doctors to make things better for patients. That's okay. what I was specialising in. And I was Fianna Fáil's uh, Michal, I did Brexit first and then he appointed me to the health brief Okay, because I love healthcare and had some background in it Yeah, uh, and uh, did that. And most people don't want the health brief. Well, yeah, it's, it's kind of a poison it, chalice. It's tough. It's a tough brief, but I love it. Uh, and so, yeah, before before any government was formed, I did. I, I said that I would be honoured to be considered. I didn't expect to be considered. Yeah. But I certainly wanted to say I would absolutely love to be the, the, the Minister for Health. And is it, you weren't, the, were you the spokesperson for health? I was, yeah. Okay. And yeah. how is it, so you were, and I'll just kind of explain to the listeners, when you're the spokesperson, that means you're that you're in opposition. So it's kind of like in football where you have to mark someone. So you're the spokesperson for health and you're marking Simon Harris, who's the Minister for Health, and kind of keeping him accountable, coming, like, giving your two cents on what decisions he's making. Now that you are the Minister and you are accountable, how does it, like, does it look easier from the other side? Is it is it difficult or how are you finding it? It's, it's um, well, first of all, it's, it's an honour that is indescribable. I mean, to be getting up every day to go in to work, to be part of a team that steers our country to through COVID and works every day with amazing people all over the country to get sick children healthcare mm-hmm. and sick adults healthcare. Like, what an amazing privilege for whatever amount of time it lasts. A pretty uh, stressful privilege, though. It no? is a really stressful it's on, privilege. That's on your shoulders. Yeah, right? it is. But, but, you know, what a privilege, what an honour to be able to serve your country in that way yeah. and and to... It certainly does full, tick that box of you wanting to be of service yeah. all your life. Yeah, it really does. And and there's the potential to help an awful lot of people because ultimately that's all it's about. You know, the only reason I think to be in politics is to help people, you know, and you want to help people who need help the most. Yeah. You know, and, and being Minister for Health is an amazing opportunity to help people who need help. So what about the people that you can't help though? Or that, you know, because obviously mm. needs are more than, you know, it's supply and demand. Like you can't help everyone. How does that sit with you? Because I know that like being a politician now on social media mm. with all those things, it's it's the people who you can't help that kind of, those are the stories that make the news. And that must yeah, be really tough. Yeah, it's true. You You can't help everybody, but you can help a lot of people, you know. So for example, when I knock on doors, the most upsetting conversations I have uh, and they're doors where you, you turn around after talking to them and you're walking down the, the their, their, their driveway and it, you're really, I am anyway, like really upset mm-hmm. somewhere between sort of being heartbroken and, and, and really angry. Uh, and it's when, when you talk to parents with kids who can't get help, right? They might be kids with special needs and they've been waiting two or three years for a speech and language therapist or for, for an occupational therapist or for a physio. 
they might be kids with sometimes quite profound intellectual or physical disabilities and they've been waiting years for somebody to do an operation in case of some physical disabilities and like I've got three small kids myself mm-hmm. and and uh, n- at the moment so that they're they're one of the groups we're helping so one of the first things I did when I got in was allocated about um, eight million euro to do something called assessment of need. So for kids who have intellectual disabilities, especially so these kids. that's Minister Rabbit. Yeah. So she has the, yeah, okay. Yeah, so, so we allocated that from a Sláinte budget to say, like there's all of these kids who can't even get an assessment. And so that's only the first step in right, getting treatment. Like Yeah, so let's get them the assessment. So our, our aim is to clear that entire backlog of kids who are waiting. Then in the meantime, we've just launched the biggest health budget in the history of the state. Ever, what is it? Right? It's 4 billion euro extra. So the whole budget is now 22 billion euro. And I think sometimes people don't understand. Like if I said to you, if millions, just to, to explain the difference between millions and billions, if I said to you, stand in line for a for a million minutes, mm. you'd be span, standing in line for like 690 days or something. But if I said to you, stand in line for a billion minutes, you'd be standing there for 1,907 years. Like the difference between a million and a billion is ferocious. So I just want to clarify that it's so that big. you know how much money we're talking about here. It's a thousand times. There's a it's thousand millions money. in a billion. So 22 billion is a, is a lot of cash. Um, and so we've increased it by 4 billion. And so now, while at the same, at, on the one hand, we're getting these kids assessed, yeah. we've also now allocated a load of money to hire the extra speech and language therapists and occupational therapists and physios and counsellors. But are those people trained and ready to just, like, is the money enough? Like, obviously the money is great, but you can't, like, if you have a thousand euro to pay a doctor, but the doctor doesn't exist because he hasn't been trained and she hasn't been gone through college. Like, is money just the thing that we need? No, or are there it's other one issues? of the things we need. Right. So what do you need? You need the right people in place. And I think across the system, I'm biased, obviously, but I think we've got the right Taoiseach. Yeah. I hope we've got the right <laughs> health minister. Um, I think we've got a really good guy running the HSE, a guy called Paul Reed. Yeah, and, we all know and, him from the briefings. Right. Yeah. And, you know, there's really good people around the healthcare system. So the first thing is you need the right team. Mm-hmm. The se- and I think, we're, I think we're there. The second thing we need is money. And we've just announced the biggest budget, health budget in history. So we've a, we've, we have a good bit of cash now for next year. The next thing you need is a plan. And we have a plan. In fact, we've lots of plans. There's a big plan, which is the, you know, universal healthcare plan. Yeah. Um, and then there's lots of sectoral plans. So there is a strategy for maternity care, which needs a lot of work. There's a strategy for cancer care. There's a strategy for trauma. There's a strategy for people with dementia. There's a strategy for sick kids. And are there people like overseeing these plans on a monthly basis there to make are, sure they're being... But they never got any money, okay. right? And so like I'm in, I started life as an engineer. And engineers are about rolling up the sleeves and getting things done. Ultimately, yeah. that's what engineers love doing. So my intention as health minister is not to come up with yet another healthcare strategy about how brilliant things could be in 10 years or mm-hmm. 20 years. My intention is to say, we have a plan. We know where we're going. We know how many beds we want. We know how many doctors and nurses we need. We know how many therapists we want and how many GPs we need. We know this stuff. Now, there's lots and lots of detailed planning. But broadly, we know what we, we know what needs to be done. We have a brilliant cancer strategy. We have a brilliant maternity strategy. We have a brilliant ambulance strategy. We have a brilliant right. dementia strategy. Let's get on and do it. Okay. There's been too much talking about what people are going to do in the future. And does, Let's just get on and do it. And so that's what we're trying to bring now is to say, so for example, the cancer strategy. Yeah. That was really important, right? Every single family in the country. I 
hope not, but I imagine most of your listeners will know someone who has or has had cancer, Mm -hmm. right? There was a brilliant strategy launched in 2017. And up to this year, it was meant to have had about 45 million euro. And it had 5 million euro. In other words, all the work was done to create a great strategy, but But there was no money ever given to make it happen. So for next year, I've given it the full amount of money it needs to get it going. So... For me, the focus is on, we've got to steer a very careful path through COVID, which is really hard yeah, to do. Yeah, because I was just going to say, like, how is that cancer care thing, like, you know, all the screenings and all those cervical check and breast check, they've all been impacted. Does that, like, do those things impact where the money is spent or how that is all going to work? Yeah, it does. So we're having to do a few things at the same time. We're, we have to steer a course through COVID. hmm and, and, and try and keep people alive. I mean, ultimately, that's what we're trying to do. And actually, over the weekend, I was looking at the fatality rates in the first wave versus the second wave. Mm-hmm. And we've had a 94% reduction in fatalities between those two waves. So for every 100 people who died in the first wave, in the equivalent group of 100 people, 94 of them are alive in the second wave. And that's down to the doctors and the nurses and to the nursing homes yeah. And all of those people doing all that incredible work to keep people safe, keep people alive, people wearing face coverings, every one of your listeners, everything they do every day to just help. So we're doing pretty well on COVID at the moment. It's a, yeah. it's a choppy, but we're doing well. And then at the same time, we're looking at the waiting lists. There's now 700,000 men, women and children waiting for care. So we got to help them get as many. How of them. long do you think it'll take to clear that? Uh, it'll take a while. But I've just allocated 340 million euro for next year. It, that's not enough, but it's as much as the system can handle at any one time. So and we're looking at that. And then the third piece, which you referenced, is while all of that is going on, you've actually got to reform the entire healthcare system. The, the analogy, I, the way I think about it is the healthcare system like is like an aeroplane in midair. It's right. a really complicated thing. Uh, it go in midair. And when you're, when you're, reforming a healthcare system when you're making a healthcare system better you never get to land the plane you, you can never like yeah, you can so never turn off the healthcare system mm-hmm. like the patients are coming in every day so what you're trying to do is you're trying to upgrade the plane Quite at 30,000 feet and with COVID you're trying to upgrade the plane at 30,000 feet in turbulence in a hurricane <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so that's while trying to keep everyone alive and how how long do you think in ideal like if you had the budget that you have and the position that you have, how long would you need to be like, okay, I need this long and then it could be reformed? How long is it going to take to fix that plane? So Uninterrupted by general elections and no confidence votes. I think if you had five years, you could do an awful lot of good. But again, it's not about one person. All of these things are teams. It's teams. It's all about teams. And like, would you have meetings with Simon Harris, let's say, and say, okay, I need, I need 600 more doctors. So you need to come up with a way to get children or to get secondary school students into universities studying to be doctors. I need I need more doctors. There'd be because a, he's our higher education. He is. So certainly the, the his department and my department would be talking to each other about, well, how many nursing places are we going to have in first year? Right, how many okay. medicine places are we going to have? How many physiotherapists? How many healthcare assistants can we train up? You know, how many occupational therapists can we train up? So yeah, those conversations are going on all the time. If you had five years, you could you could you could do an awful lot, but you, look, you can you can do and a do lot. Do you have five years? I know that uh, Leo and Michal, obviously, general elections aside, but like yeah. when when 
the tarnish that becomes a Taoiseach again and they do that switch after two and a half years, do you, is there a cabinet reshuffle then? Uh, that is in the hands of the party leaders. Oh, right, okay. We'll see We'll see where that goes. So, no, you know, who, who knows? But look, you can, you can do a lot of good in a short period of time. So, for example, one of my priorities is women's health care. Okay. Now, I understand I'm a, I'm a male minister for health saying this, yep. but, but somebody's got to fight for it. And I am. Mm-hmm. So one in the programme for government, which is the agreed priorities between Fianna Fáil, Fianna Gael and the Greens for government, um, I fought very hard to have women's health care in there as one of the health priorities. So the national maternity strategy. So women going to give babies around Ireland right now are having to go and they're served by amazing doctors and midwives but the conditions are, are outrageous. They're Dickensian, mm-hmm. right? I mean, in, in Dublin, the, the three maternity hospitals are just not fit for purpose and they're overcrowded and it's not fair on women. My personal view is that if men had babies, they would all look like the Blackrock Clinic yeah. or the Starship Enterprise, <laughs> yeah. the hospitals, right? And I, I think, rightly or wrongly, I believe that women's health care generally has has been ignored. Uh, so, so already what we've done is we've said, right, well, let's give the National Maternity Strategy the full amount of funding it needs. It's never had it. And now let's work with the Rotunda and with the Coombe and with Hollis Street and with the other maternity hospitals around the country and say, well, how how can we make the experience for mums and babies better? You know, do you need money to upgrade? Do you need money to add new beds? Do you need money for new treatments? Do you need, need new diagnostics? How can we make the experience better? And there's some really exciting stuff happening. So one of the things in the in the maternity strategy is that there's a whole piece of it now will be midwife-led, which has never happened before. You know, there was the domino scheme out of the yes, rotunda, yeah, yeah. but never at a national level. So I'm now championing that and we're allocating money to actually make that happen. You know, so there's stuff you can do. There's things we're doing now straight away that, please God, will make a big difference to people. So before we finish up, I just want to know what your... What your biggest hope for while you're in the brief is? Like, what what do you what would you love? To, what would you say if you left the brief in however many years and you'd achieved one thing? What would that be? Oh my God! I I should probably have an answer at the top of my tongue for that, but but I it doesn't even have to be a specific thing. But like, what do you want to leave feeling like? Yeah, I've done a good job because I tell you what it's, it's so it's not about me and what I achieve, right? It, it, what, I tell you what I think success is. Okay. For me or the government or whoever takes takes the role after me or, or whoever it is, right? Success to me is as you grow up that the the outcomes you have in terms of health, how healthy you are, how fit you are, how, you know, engaged in sports or other activities you are, you know, how good your general health is as you grow up has no connection whatsoever to the amount of money your mum and dad made. That ultimately is success. Because if we do that, then we have created a public healthcare system in this country that treats all of the children equally. We don't have that now. We're quite far from that right now. And if you look at the health outcomes for even young boys and girls in more disadvantaged areas, they do much worse. Mm-hmm. So to me, it doesn't really matter what I achieve in six months or a year or five years. Total success is that all the children are treated the same and get the same opportunity in terms of health. The day we reach that, 
we will have created the healthcare system that our republic deserves. That sounds incredible. I really, I really hope that you achieve that. Thank, Thank you, you so much for coming in to talk to us, Minister Stephen Donnelly. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of Basically. As ever, if you enjoyed the podcast, please share it with someone that really helps to increase listenership or you could rate it or review it wherever you're listening to it. I don't think you can rate or review on Spotify, but, you know, tell someone on social media about it. Uh, Our music is by Only Ruin. Our graphic design is by Kahlogar. And as ever, we are produced by the Headstuff Podcast Networks at the Podcast Studios. This has been a production of the Headstuff Podcast Network. 